Chapter 17. Seven Keys to Godly Fellowship If fellowship is the common ground we share as disciples of Jesus Christ, then one of our top priorities should be figuring out how God wants us to share that ground. In its entry on fellowship, the Baker Encyclopedia of the Bible looks at seven biblical guidelines for enhancing the communion, or fellowship, of believers in the body, which we can condense to the following list. Number one, loving as Christ loved. Number two, seeking the good of others. Number three, bearing one another's burdens. Number four, sharing material blessings. Number five, correcting and forgiving in love. Number six, extending empathy and compassion. Number seven, praying for each other. Here's what we need to keep in mind. They all matter. We need to be working on and practicing each of these keys, regardless of how naturally they come to us. This isn't a scenario where we can pick and choose a handful of options we're good at while ignoring the rest. Every single item in this chapter is an important part of Christian fellowship, and we cannot afford to ignore any of them. For the rest of this chapter, we'll take a closer look at each of these seven keys and explore what they look like in action. Loving as Christ Loved On the final evening of his human life, Jesus gave his disciples a solemn instruction. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, as I have loved you that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. John 13, 34-35 There are a great many things that ought to make us unique as followers of Jesus Christ. But Jesus said that our defining characteristic, the trait that will make our identity obvious to everyone around us, should be the love we have for each other. But we're not just talking about any kind of love here. Jesus told us to love each other just as I have loved you. Godly, Christ-like love should define our fellowship with each other. The bar for this kind of love is a high one. That same evening, Jesus elaborated on his new commandment. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. You are my friends, if you do whatever I command you. John 15 verses 12 through 14. By sacrificing himself to pay the penalty for our sins, Jesus set the ultimate example of what godly love looks like in action. That kind of self-sacrifice ought to inform the way we interact with our fellow Christians, as John pointed out in his first letter to the church. By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. 1 John 3.16 And again, he who does not love does not know God, for God is love. 1 John 4.8 To be clear, we won't always love as Christ loved. We're human. We'll mess up. We'll fall short. But that kind of love is the goal. It isn't always easy. It doesn't always come naturally. But it is what we need to strive for. Rather than a feeling, love is an action, a choice we must continually make over and over again, even when we'd rather not. Jesus asked, If you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? Therefore you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. 
Matthew 5, 46-48. Very often, our human instincts will be to respond to others with something less than love. In those moments, it's up to us to make the conscious choice to show godly love. Paul spent some time explaining godly love to the Corinthians, driving home the point that without this kind of love, we are nothing. See 1 Corinthians 13 verses 1 through 3. Very few of us will have the opportunity to literally lay down our lives for the brethren, but we can fulfill this command by making sacrifices of our time and our effort. These are, after all, the primary ingredients of our lives in the first place, the time God gives us and the activities we choose to spend that time on. The love we have for each other ought to reflect the love God has for us, constant, sincere, and unwavering. It ought to be the driving motivation behind our every action and interaction with each other. It ought to govern the words we choose to use and even the thoughts we dwell on. Paul wrote, Let all that you do be done with love. 1 Corinthians 16, 14 And the author of Hebrews encouraged us, Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Hebrews 13, verse 1, NIV As we fellowship with others, we should be constantly measuring ourselves against this standard. The words we choose when we're with others, the things we do when we're around them. Is love our motivation? An important part of growing to be more like Jesus Christ is learning to love others the way He loves us, by continually laying down our lives for our spiritual brothers and sisters. In fact, as we look at the remaining six keys to godly fellowship, we'll begin to see that each one is really just a specific way we can show love in our fellowship with each other. Seeking the Good of Others One practical key for improving our fellowship is simply looking for ways to help each other. Paul told the Corinthians, Let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. 1 Corinthians 10.24 Godly fellowship is impossible when we each individually focus only on our own needs and wants, but it flourishes when we each make the effort to focus on the needs and wants of others. Paul expanded on that thought when he told the Philippians, Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Philippians 2 verses 1 through 4. The ESV translates this section, In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. It's not that we need to view ourselves as worthless, it's that we should default to treating others as if they are worth more. This key to fellowship requires a mindset that defaults to asking, What can I do to help? And how can I make things better? The more we take the time to think about what we can do for each other, the more we begin to function not just as individuals, but as the singular body of Christ, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. Ephesians 4.16 ESV God has given each of us gifts and talents to use for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Verses 12-13 through 13, ESV But if we don't focus on using those gifts and talents the way they were intended, that is, for the good of everyone and not just ourselves, how will the body grow? As a spiritual body, 
we are each connected to our fellow Christians. Our fellowship, what we share in common, is strengthened only when we take the time to think about what's best for those we share our calling with. Bearing One Another's Burdens In his letter to the Galatians, Paul gave seemingly contradictory instructions. First, he told them to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ, Galatians 6 verse 2. Then, just a few sentences later, he seems to have written the exact opposite. For each one shall bear his own load, verse 5. In the letter to the Galatians, David A. De Silva comments that by burdens, Paul is referring to both moral and personal failures, see verse 1, as well as all burdensome experiences of life, all the trials that life simply sends each person's way. Believers are to extend love, kindness, support, and, as needed, material help toward those experiencing such burdens so as to make them easier to bear. Carrying another person's physical burden was the work of a slave when one was available. Voluntarily doing so, particularly in regard to the burdens that make life oppressive or that erode a person's walk in the spirit, is the work of love. Spiritually, God expects us to voluntarily perform the work of slaves for our brothers and sisters in Christ, helping them to carry their burdens as best we can. In the case of moral and personal failures, God also expects us to help guide our brethren toward repentance and restoration with him in a spirit of gentleness, Galatians 6 verse 1. This is a concept Paul hinted at earlier in his letter, explaining that although we were called to freedom, we must, through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Galatians 5, 13-14 ESV The word Paul used for serve is a Greek word that specifically refers to serving as a slave. Offering kindness, compassion, and support to our brethren should never be a job we look at as beneath us or better left to someone else. Jesus asked, Who is greater, he who sits at the table or he who serves? Is it not he who sits at the table? Yet I am among you as the one who serves. Luke 22, verse 27. Jesus was willing to put aside his glory and majesty as God, emptying himself and taking the form of a bondservant. See Philippians 2, verse 7. That's our example. We are free, but through love we choose to serve each other as if we were slaves. Part of our fellowship includes a willingness to lend a hand when we see others struggling under the weight of life's burdens. Job was known for doing this, and his friends praised him for it. Surely you have instructed many, and you have strengthened weak hands. Your words have upheld him who is stumbling, and you have strengthened the feeble knees. Job 4 verses 3 through 4. Other verses make it clear that Job did more than just offer words. He took action to help those who were struggling under life's burdens. See Job 29, verses 12 through 17. As for the apparent contradiction in Paul's letter, De Silva explains, Paul strikes a balance between individual responsibility and community support, charging the community with doing all in its power to help each individual member remain within the boundaries of the proper and fruitful exercise of his or her freedom as a Christian, chapter 6, verses 1 through 2, so that he or she will be best positioned to stand, that is, survive, God's judgment on the last day. Chapter 6, verse 5. The weight of life's burdens is to be shared among Christians in the assembly as long as life endures. Chapter 6, verses 1 through 2. The ultimate responsibility for a life, however, cannot be shared, even if one would wish. Chapter 6, verse 5. 
In other words, although we each share a responsibility to help lighten the load of the trials experienced by our brothers and sisters in the faith, your life and your choices are your own. No one else's action or inaction can change where you stand with God, just as your own actions can't change where others stand with God. Part of bearing one another's burdens means remaining aware that there's only so much we can carry. At the end of the day, our own load is between us and God, no one else. Sharing Material Blessings From almost the moment the New Testament church began, fellowship was linked with sharing God's physical blessings. After Peter's moving sermon on Pentecost, those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Acts 2 verses 41 and 47 These thousands of believers had gathered in Jerusalem to observe Pentecost, one of God's annual holy days. Normally, they all would have returned to their homes afterward, but the message they had received about the identity of Jesus Christ and God's plan for salvation was life-changing. They weren't ready to leave. And so they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Verse 42. This was a temporary state of affairs. There was no way for the church to exist in this configuration forever, continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. Verse 46. But for at least some time after the church began, God's people experienced a constant and profound level of fellowship. What made that fellowship possible? Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. Verses 44 through 45. These early believers had an incredible willingness to share with each other. Later, we read that the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. Acts 4.32 As the church grew and various congregations were established around the known world, it was impossible for everyone to be together in the same way as those early days in Jerusalem. Most of the multitude of those who believed would eventually have to return to their own homes, families, and responsibilities. But even after that chapter of church history ended, the idea of being of one heart and one soul, of voluntarily sharing God's physical blessings with our brethren, remained an important one. When the Corinthian congregation was preparing to contribute to a collection for the needy brethren in Jerusalem, Paul gave them some important insights into this aspect of Christian fellowship. First, he emphasized that if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. 2 Corinthians 8 verse 12, ESV. In other words, God is not so concerned with the monetary value of what we share, but our willingness to share. Paul added, So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. 2 Corinthians 9 verses 7 through 8. God doesn't ask us to share more than we have or to put ourselves in debt to take care of others. Paul continued, I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. 2 Corinthians 8 verses 13 through 15 ESV. When those God has blessed with physical wealth share with those who have little, they help bring a fairness or equality, isotes, 
Strong's number G2471, into the church. And God promises to bless them in response, equipping them with an abundance for every good work. And when those with little offer what they can, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. See Christ's comments on the widow's two mites in Luke chapter 21, verses 1 through 4. Second, Paul specifically labeled the Corinthian congregation's donation as a form of fellowship. He called this gift their liberal sharing, using the Greek word koinonia, Strong's number G2842, the same word used elsewhere to mean fellowship. When we share the blessings God gives us with our brothers and sisters in the faith, we strengthen the ties of fellowship between us. Correcting and Forgiving in Love In a perfect world, all Christians would do everything correctly. There would never be any mistakes, misunderstandings, or bad decisions. We would all do the right thing all the time. But we aren't in a perfect world. And we aren't perfect either. Correction is probably the most difficult element of fellowship. And at the same time, one of the most important. It can be uncomfortable to give or receive But as a community of believers, correction of sin is a tool God gives us to help keep each other on the right path. Like everything else we do, see 1 Corinthians 16 verse 14, correction must be done in love. It is all too easy to use correction as a weapon to attack others with, to use it as a means of insulting others, degrading them, and elevating ourselves. That's not how God wants to see it done. When we see someone overtaken in any trespass, God expects us to restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself lest you also be tempted. Galatians 6 verse 1. God hates sin, and so should we. The trouble is that we sometimes transfer our hatred of sin onto the person who committed the sin, which isn't what God wants at all. Anytime we correct the trespasses of others, the goal should be restoration. We should want to see our brothers and sisters restored to a right relationship with God. Any correction we give others must come from a spirit of gentleness and love, not anger and disgust, keeping in mind that any of us can fall prey to the temptations of sin. Correction should always be attempted in the most private way possible. Jesus taught us that if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. Matthew 18, verse 15. In the ideal scenario, sins are addressed and reconciliation is made in private, away from the public eye. However, if that approach doesn't work, the solution isn't to give up and walk away. Sin has a corrupting influence, and a little leaven leavens the whole lump. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 6. Jesus outlined further steps for addressing the sin, beginning with bringing additional witnesses and culminating in bringing it to the church. Matthew 18, verses 16 through 17. In the worst-case scenario, if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Verse 17. This is what makes correction so uncomfortable. We can't begin the process of correction without also acknowledging that if our brother refuses the correction, we may ultimately have to terminate the relationship. In other words, we shouldn't undertake correction lightly. First and foremost, we should know what God says about the issue at hand, which requires regular Bible study from us. We should make sure we have all the facts, we should be taking it to God in prayer, and we should be analyzing our own blind spots and preconceived ideas, see Matthew 7 verses 1 through 5, 
before telling a fellow Christian he or she needs to address a sin. Of course, it's also possible to be hurt by Christians who aren't sinning. We should always be willing to forgive mistakes, misunderstandings, and unwise choices, being careful not to impute motives or assume sinful attitudes. We must also be aware of our own mistakes, misunderstandings, unwise choices, and our sins, as Jesus taught in Luke chapter 6, verses 41 through 42. When we find the plank that is in our own eye, we should be quick to apologize, and in the case of sin, repent. And yet, even when an unresolved sin forces the end of a relationship, there's still hope. Paul instructed ministers about the purpose of church discipline. A servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance, so that they may know the truth, and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24-26 through 26. The goal of excluding an unrepentant sinner from fellowship with God's people is the hope that the sinner will come to his or her senses, repenting and re-entering that same fellowship. This is exactly what happened at the church in Corinth. Paul urged the Corinthians to disfellowship a member of the church who was openly and proudly sinning, see 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1-5. through 5. Later, after that same member had repented, Paul urged the Corinthians to welcome him back, offering forgiveness and comfort. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 3 through 11. Even though correction sometimes requires us to stop keeping company with those who refuse to change, we do it with the hope that one day we will be able to forgive and reconcile with them. Of course, ideally, the correction process should never reach that stage. We should all be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, James 1 verse 19 ESV, giving others the benefit of the doubt and extending love and compassion along the way. And when we are on the receiving end of correction, no matter how kindly or unkindly that correction is delivered, we should fight the urge to brush it off as invalid or inaccurate, instead choosing to prayerfully reflect and consider what we've been told. If we can keep our own pride and arrogance from getting in the way, Loving correction and forgiveness can become integral keys to godly fellowship. But if we leave love out of the equation, incessant correction will do the exact opposite, fracturing relationships and destroying fellowship. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. Galatians 5, 14-15 Extending Empathy and Compassion When we look at the analogy of the church as the body of Christ, it becomes blindingly obvious why things like empathy and compassion are important. Imagine accidentally touching a hot stove with your hand and not feeling any pain. You wouldn't know that your hand was actively being damaged. You wouldn't instinctively remove your hand to keep things from getting worse. Take away our ability to feel pain and you take away part of our ability to care for and protect our own bodies. In a similar fashion, God composed the body, that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. Or if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. 1 Corinthians 12 verses 24 through 26. In the body of Christ, empathy and compassion are like the network of nerves that keep us aware of how our own body is feeling. We know when we've pulled a muscle or jammed a finger, or worse, broken a bone. 
And even though we're aware of the source of the pain, it's something we feel throughout our entire body. It's not a reaction we can just shut off. We can't help it. When a single part of our body hurts, we hurt. When Christians we know are experiencing a trial, we ought to be aware of that trial, and just as importantly, how that trial makes them feel. When our fellow Christians experience personal triumphs and victories, we should share in their excitement as well. We are to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Romans 12:15. Of course, it's possible to have empathy and compassion about the wrong things. Our loving concern for our brethren should never lead us to excuse, accept, or justify sin. But, by the same token, our disgust for sin should never lead us to write off any of our brethren as a lost cause. The Gospel accounts show us repeated instances where Jesus was motivated by compassion for others. When he saw the multitudes who were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd, Matthew 9.36. When the blind men and lepers cried out for healing, see Matthew 20 verses 31 through 34 and Mark 1 verses 40 through 41. When he encountered the grieving widow who had lost her only son in Luke 7.13, among other instances. Compassion featured prominently in Jesus' parables. The parables of the unforgiving servant in Matthew 18, verses 27 and 33, the good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10, verse 33, and the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15, verse 20, all revolve around the importance of compassion in our interactions with each other. More than that, Jesus also showed us that acts of compassion are one of the deciding factors in whether or not we'll have a place in God's kingdom. In a parable about God's ultimate judgment, Jesus tells the righteous, Come, you blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Matthew 25, verses 34 through 36. The righteous, perplexed, wonder when they could have possibly done these things for Jesus. And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these my brethren, you did it to me. Verse 40. The wicked, on the other hand, are those who ignored their brethren in need, and who, by extension, ignored their king. And these will go away into eternal punishment, that is, eternal death, but the righteous into eternal life. Verse 46, ESV. Learning to care for others to share their pain, to rejoice in their victories, and to step in and help where we can is more than just a key to godly fellowship. It's a key to being a follower of Jesus Christ. Praying for each other. We cover prayer extensively in part one of this book, but an important part of fellowship centers around praying specifically for each other. Paul urged the Ephesians to pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Pray also for me, that whenever I speak, words may be given to me, so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly, as I should. Ephesians 6, 18-20, NIV Paul frequently requested prayers from church members, that God would open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ. Colossians 4 verse 3, that the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified just as it is with you and that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men. 2 Thessalonians 3, 1 through 2 
and that I may be delivered from those in Judea who do not believe, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, that I may come to you with joy by the will of God, and may be refreshed together with you. Romans 15.31-32 One of the primary functions of the church is to go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. Matthew 28.19-20 Praying for those who are actively spreading and teaching the word of God is an important aspect of fellowship, one that directly ties us into the incredible work God is doing in this world. But Paul also encouraged us to keep on praying for all the Lord's people, that is, for all the saints, Ephesians 6, 18. Our request to God shouldn't just be about those on the front lines of preaching and teaching the gospel message. They should include all our brothers and sisters in Christ. Actually, they shouldn't even stop there. Paul told Timothy, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. 1 Timothy 2, 1-4, ESV Everyone in the world is a potential future brother or sister in Christ, and we should pray for everyone as such. There are at least two things worth focusing on when it comes to praying for our brethren. The first is that in order to pray about the needs of others, we need to know the needs of others. That might seem like an obvious thing to say, but if we don't take the time to truly get to know what's going on in the lives of our fellow Christians, how can we possibly hope to pray to God on their behalf? The more we make an effort to build deep and meaningful relationships with each other, the more naturally we'll be able to present the needs of others to God in our prayers. The second is that we can also pray for our relationships with others. As long as human beings are imperfect, our fellowship with each other will also be imperfect. We'll inevitably need God's help to smooth out some of the rough edges. Does the idea of approaching others and initiating conversation leave you feeling stressed, anxious, and out of your depth? Ask God to calm your nerves and help you find the words you need. Is there someone in your congregation you have trouble relating to or connecting with? Ask God to help you both understand each other's perspectives a little more clearly, or to help you find some common ground to bridge that gap. Is there someone in the congregation you actively avoid because of hurt feelings and or past conflicts? Ask God to bring the two of you to a state of reconciliation, forgiveness, and understanding. If the members of the church become disconnected, then the church itself becomes disconnected. Fellowship is the lifeblood of the body of Christ, and prayers to God are one way we can keep that blood circulating.